This is section 44 of Mark Twain, A Biography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, A Biography, by Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter 148, Cable and His Great Joke. Meanwhile, with the completion of the Sellers play, Clemens had flung himself into dramatic writing once more, with a new and more violent impetuosity than ever. Howells had hardly returned to Boston when he wrote, Now let's write a tragedy. The enclosed is not fancy, it is history, except that the little girl was a passing stranger and not kin to any of the parties. I read the incident in Carlyle's Cromwell a year ago and made a note in my notebook. Stumbled on the note today and wrote up the closing scene of a possible tragedy to see how it might work. If we made this colonel a grand fellow and gave him a wife to suit, eh? It's right in the big historical times. War. Cromwell in big picturesque power and all that. Come, let's do this tragedy, and do it well. Curious, but didn't Florence want a Cromwell? But Cromwell would not be the chief figure here. It was the closing scene of that pathetic passage in history from which he would later make his story the death disc. Howells was too tired and too occupied to undertake immediately a new dramatic labor, so Clemens went steaming ahead alone. My billiard table is stacked up with books relating to the Sandwich Islands. The walls are upholstered with scraps of paper penciled with notes drawn from them. I have saturated myself with knowledge of that unimaginably beautiful land and that most strange and fascinating people, and I have begun a story. Its hidden motive will illustrate a but little considered fact in human nature, that the religious folly you are born in you will die in, no matter what apparently reasonabler religious folly may seem to have taken its place meanwhile abolished and obliterated it. I start Bill Ragsdale at eleven years of age, and the heroine at four, in the midst of the ancient idolatrous system with its picturesque and amazing customs and superstitions, three months before the arrival of the missionaries, and the erection of a shallow Christianity upon the ruins of the old paganism. Then these two will become educated Christians and highly civilized. And then I will jump fifteen years and do Ragsdale's leper business. When we come to dramatize, we can draw a deal of matter from the story, all ready to our hand. He made elaborate preparations for the Sandwich Island story, which he and Howells would dramatize later, and within the space of a few weeks he actually did dramatize, 
the prince and the pauper and tom sawyer and was prodding webster to find proper actors or managers stipulating at first severe and arbitrary terms which were gradually modified as one after another of the prospective customers found these dramatic wares unsuited to their needs mark twain was one of the most dramatic creatures that ever lived but he lacked the faculty of stage arrangement of the dramatic idea it is one of the commonest defects in the literary makeup also one of the hardest to realize and to explain the winter of eighteen eighty three eighty four was a gay one in the clemens home henry irving was among those entertained augustus st gaudens aldridge and his wife howells of course and george w cable cable had now permanently left the south for the promised land which all authors of the south and west seek eventually and had in due course made his way to hartford clemens took cable's fortunes in hand as he had done with many another invited him to his home and undertook to open negotiations with the american publishing company of which frank bliss was now the manager for the improvement of his fortunes cable had been giving readings from his stories and had somewhere picked up the measles he suddenly came down with the complaint during his visit to clemens and his case was a violent one it required the constant attendance of a trained nurse and one or two members of the household to pull him through in the course of time he was convalescent and when contagion was no longer to be feared guests were invited in for his entertainment at one of these gatherings cable produced a curious book which he said had been lent to him by professor francis bacon of new haven as a great rarity it was a little privately printed pamphlet written by a southern youth named s watson wolston a yale student of eighteen forty five and was an absurd romance of the hyperflorid grandiloquent sort entitled love triumphant or the enemy conquered its heroine's name was ambulinia and its flowery half meaningless periods and impossible situations delighted clemens beyond measure he begged cable to lend it to him to read at the saturday morning club declaring that he certainly must own the book at whatever cost henry c robinson who was present remembered having seen a copy in his youth and twichell thought he recalled such a book on sale in new haven during his college days twichell said nothing as to any purpose in the matter but somewhat later being in new haven he stepped into the old bookstore and found the same proprietor who remembered very well the book and its author twichell rather fearfully asked if by any chance a copy of it might still be obtained well was the answer i undertook to put my cellar in order the other day and found about a quart of them down there i think i can supply you twichell took home six of the books at ten cents each and on their first spring walk to talcott's tower casually mentioned to clemens the quest for the rare ambulinia but clemens had given up the pursuit new york dealers had reported no success in the matter the book was no longer in existence what would you give for a copy asked twichell clemens became excited it isn't a question of price he said that would be for the owner to set if i could find him 
Twitchell drew a little package from his pocket. Well, Mark, he said, here are six copies of that book to begin with. If that isn't enough, I can get you a wagon load. It was enough, but it did not deter Clemens in his purpose, which was to immortalize the little book by pointing out its peculiar charms. He did this later, and eventually included the entire story with comments in one of his own volumes. Clemens and Twitchell did not always walk that spring. The early form of bicycle, the prehistoric high wheel, had come into vogue, and they each got one and attempted its conquest. They practiced it in the early morning hours on Farmington Avenue, which was wide and smooth, and they had an instructor, a young German, who, after a morning or two, regarded Mark Twain helplessly and said, Mr. Clemens, it's remarkable. You can fall off a bicycle more different ways than the man that invented it. They were curious things, those old high-wheel machines. You were perched away up in the air, with the feeling that you were likely at any moment to strike a pebble or something that would fling you forward with damaging results. Frequently that is what happened. The word header seems to have grown out of that early bicycling period. Perhaps Mark Twain invented it. He had enough experience to do it. He always declared afterward that he invented all the new bicycle profanity that has since come into general use. Once he wrote, There was a, a row of low stepping stones across one end of the street, a measured yard apart. Even after I got so I could steer pretty fairly, I was so afraid of those stones I always hit them. They gave me the worst falls I ever got in that street, except those which I got from dogs. I have seen it stated that no expert is quick enough to run over a dog, that a dog is always able to skip out of his way. I think that that may be true, but I think that the reason he couldn't run over the dog was because he was trying to. I did not try to run over any dog, but I ran over every dog that came along. I think it makes a great deal of difference. If you try to run over the dog, he knows how to calculate, but if you are trying to miss him, well, he does not know how to calculate, and is liable to jump the wrong way every time. It was always so in my experience. Even when I could not hit a wagon, I could hit a dog that came to see me practice. They all liked to see me practice, and they all came, for there was very little going on in our neighborhood to entertain a dog. He conquered measurably that old discouraging thing, and he and Twitchell would go on excursions, sometimes as far as Weathersfield or to the tower. It was a pleasant change, at least it was an interesting one, but bicycling on the high wheel was never a popular diversion with Mark Twain, and his enthusiasm in the sport had died before the safety came along. He had his machine sent out to Elmira, 
but there were too many hills in Chemung County, and after one brief excursion he came in limping and pushing his wheel, and did not try it again. To return to Cable, when the first of April, 1884, approached, he concluded it would be a good time to pay off his debt of gratitude for his recent entertainment in the Clemens home. He went to work at it systematically. He had a private and confidential circular letter printed, and he mailed it to 150 of Mark Twain's literary friends in Boston, Hartford, Springfield, New York, Brooklyn, Washington, and elsewhere, suggesting that they write to him so that their letters would reach him simultaneously April 1st, asking for his autograph. No stamps or cards were to be enclosed for reply, and it was requested that no stranger to Mr. Clemens and no minor should take part. Mrs. Clemens was let into the secret so that she would see to it that her husband did not reject his mail or commit it to the flames unopened. It would seem that every one receiving the invitation must have responded to it, for on the morning of April 1st a stupefying mass of letters was unloaded on Mark Twain's table. He did not know what to make of it, and Mrs. Clemens stood off to watch the results. The first one he opened was from Dean Sage, a friend whom he valued highly. Sage wrote from Brooklyn, Dear Clemens, I have recently been asked by a young lady who unfortunately has a mania for autograph collecting, but otherwise is a charming character, and comely enough to suit your fastidious taste, to secure for her the sign manual of the few distinguished persons fortunate enough to have my acquaintance in enumerating them to her after mentioning the names of george shepherd page joe mitchell captain isaiah rindus mr willard dan mace and j l sullivan i came to yours oh said she i have read all his works little breeches the heathen chinee and the rest and think them delightful do oblige me by asking him for his autograph preceded by any little sentiment that may occur to him provided it is not too short of course i promised and hope you will oblige me by sending some little thing addressed to miss oakes we are all pretty well at home just now though indisposition has been among us for the past fortnight with regards to mrs clemens and the children in which my wife joins yours truly dean sage it amused and rather surprised him and it fooled him completely but when he picked up a letter from brander matthews asking in some absurd fashion for his signature and another from ellen terry and from irving and from stedman and from warner and waring and h c bunner and sarony and lawrence hutton and john hay and r u johnson and mojeska the size and quality of the joke began to overawe him he was delighted of course for really it was a fine compliment in its way and most of the letters were distinctly amusing some of them asked for autographs by the yard some by the pound henry irving said i have just got back from a very late rehearsal five o'clock very tired but there will be no rest till i get your autograph 
some requested him to sit down and copy a few chapters from the innocents abroad for them or to send an original manuscript others requested that his autograph be attached to a check of interesting size john hay suggested that he copy a hymn a few hundred lines of young's night thoughts and an equal amount of pollack's course of time i want my boy to form a taste for serious and elevated poetry and it will add considerable of commercial value to have them in your handwriting altogether the reading of the letters gave him a delightful day and his admiration for cable grew accordingly cable too was pleased with the success of his joke though he declared he would never risk such a thing again a newspaper of the time reports him as saying i never suffered so much agony as for a few days previous to the first of april i was afraid the letters would reach mark twain when he was in affliction in which case all of us would never have ceased flying to make it up to him when i visited mark we used to open our budgets of letters together at breakfast we used to sing out whenever we struck an autograph hunter i think the idea came from that the first person i spoke to about it was robert underwood johnson of the century my most enthusiastic ally was the rev henry ward beecher we never thought it would get into the papers i never played a practical joke before i never will again certainly mark twain in those days did not encourage the regular autograph collectors and seldom paid any attention to their requests for his signature he changed all this in later years and kept a supply always on hand to satisfy every request but in those earlier days he had no patience with collecting fads and it required a particularly pleasing application to obtain his signature end of chapter one hundred and forty eight cable and his great joke read by john greenman